From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, March 7th. I'm Marco Werman. A debt swap may ease the Greek financial crisis, but not the tensions between Greeks and Germans. Just ask this businessman trying to sell Greek wine in Germany. We sat down, he drank the wine, he loved the wines. He said, so Marcus, now you just have to tell me how can I sell a Greek wine to a German now? Plus, an anthropologist's fascination with hackers. I feel like I'm often operating in a maze or a labyrinth, and it feels like a puzzle. Figuring out anonymous on the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Greece is staring at yet another deadline this week. But tomorrow, the country must convince its creditors to forgive a big chunk of its debt. It's a condition Greece must meet if it's to receive more bailout money. The crisis has generated a lot of resentment between Greece and its richer Eurozone partners, especially Germany. In a few minutes, we'll hear more on that from a Greek student living in Germany. First, we go to Greece itself and the all-important question of how to grow the economy again. The world's Clark Boyd has more from Athens. On a windy plain 20 miles outside of Athens, grapevines vie for space with suburban sprawl. Dimitris Yorgas shows me the vines are about to bear fruit. It's here, they're ready. If, if, if we're going to have sun signing for two or three days, they... Yorgas's family has been growing wine here for generations. Inside the small, well-equipped winery, he asked me the million-dollar question. So do you like to taste some products? Of course. <laughs> okay, let's see. Uh, this is... Yorgos's winery produces only about 50,000 bottles worth a year. He does reds and whites and retsina, a Greek wine with pine resin added. He says his wines, and Greek wines in general, are special, like the Greeks themselves. We are different because we think uh, in a way, we act in a way, we dance in a way, we drink in a way. As long as we've got the quality, and the Greek wines, they do have some quality. If we are not afraid to communicate this quality, to be authentic outside, the thing is here or here. As he says that last part, he points to his heart and his head. Jorgis's views on the unique quality of Greek wine are shared by, of all people, a German by the name of Marcus Stoltz. Stoltz spent years in London as a derivatives trader, but his passion was wine. His wife is Greek, and they always dreamed of moving back to Greece. Eight years ago, they did. Stoltz said he liked what he tasted. I started to taste the Greek wines here, and that was an eye-opener for me. And I also saw that uh, Greek wines, that the quality was just getting better and better year after year. And then I started to look at the export figures of Greek wines, and I thought there is something very, very wrong here. He found that the vast majority of Greek wine was consumed in Greece. So three years ago, just before the economic calamity hit, Stoltz decided to give up high finance and set up shop as a Greek wine exporter. He started by contacting wine merchants in his native Germany and in Britain, where he had lived. And I wrote out about 100 letters, traditionally introducing myself, saying, you know, I will help you to come together with Greek wineries. And the interest I received back was literally less than zero. 
Stoltz persisted. He started a blog on Greek wine. He used social networks like Facebook and Twitter to spread the word. Stoltz even got invited to the U.S. to be on internet wine critic Gary Vaynerchuk's web show. The Germans, among others, started to listen. He organized tastings in Germany. But last year, attitudes started to change as Greeks and Germans began blaming each other for the Eurozone debt troubles. I give you an example. I had been working on a German wine merchant for one and a half years to get an appointment for Greek wines. I finally met him in November. Um, We sat down, he drank the wines, I told the stories. He loved it, he loved the wines. And before we broke off, he said... So, Marcus, now you just have to tell me, how can I sell a Greek wine to a German now? The current bad blood between Germans and Greeks started to play out online, Stoltz says. There had been lots of calls by Greeks who would send me emails or call me up and say, Marcus, you have to make a political stance on your blog and tell the Germans off. And at the same time, you know, on the same day sometimes, I get emails or calls from Germans who say, Marcus, you really have to make a stance on your blog, tell the Greeks off. Stoltz says he tries not to get too depressed about it. From a business point of view, he says, the American market is more promising anyway. He thinks Greek winemakers and the government should be marketing Greek wine in a big way right now. Not to mention olive oil and cheese, two other fantastic products Greece could find more markets for. And he's trying to get more winemakers here to think about exporting, especially now that the Greek domestic market has been squeezed hard by the debt crisis. For The World, this is Clark Boyd in Athens. You can watch Marcus Stoltz on that internet wine show and join in the conversation about Greek wine on Twitter. Just head to theworld.org. The animosity between Greeks and Germans over the financial crisis has at times reached the highest levels of the two countries' governments. Last month, Germany's finance minister referred to Greece as a bottomless pit. That drew an angry response from the Greek president, who accused Germany of ridiculing his nation. Must be hard to take for someone like Aliki Gerliotti. The 25-year-old is from Greece but has been living in Germany for a year. She says at times the political rhetoric in Germany has made her uncomfortable. I've never experienced any kind of racism. On the other hand, the only thing that has been constantly offending me is the racist approach of some German media as well as the offending statements of some German politicians. I was going to ask you what it's been like uh, to, to follow the Greek crisis through the lens of the German media. Can you give me a couple of specific examples of what really has offended you in the media in Germany? This oversimplifying interpretation of this crisis, this argument that describes the Greek people as lazy, heavy spenders and uh, ungrateful cheaters who brought the crisis upon themselves because they were incapable of improving the situation, And are you seeing that in a lot of newspapers, in all newspapers, or just kind of, you know, specific tabloids? The the example that comes to my mind right now is the most popular newspaper in Germany, the Bild newspaper, has been uh, spreading racist propaganda against the Greek people. Can you give me an example or two? When your cover suggests that Greece should sell a couple of islands in order to pay the debt, and the Acropolis too, That is offensive, that is racist. And also this rhetoric about the lazy Greeks has been reproduced in many articles of this newspaper. So this paper suggested that Greece should sell the Acropolis to pay off its debt or help pay off its debt? Yes, I mean, it's irony, Mm. of course, but yes. And uh, it's not just the the built newspaper. Mm. It is also a focus magazine who sewed on the cover the Aphrodite of Milos making an offending gesture with her hand that is racism. 
because it tried to interpret this crisis through national generalizations. And what about your own personal experience with anger at Greece or even anti-Greek sentiments in Germany? Has it been uncomfortable at all for you being Greek in Germany? In general, the German people did not mistreat me in any way. Of course, they make jokes about Greece or they pity us, which is the worst. But I didn't experience any kind of racism on behalf of the German people. What, what are you hearing from your family back in Greece? How are they faring through all of this? I come from a middle-class family, and one would expect that a middle-class family wouldn't be in such a tragic state right now. But the problem in Greece is that the middle class is actually paying for the crisis. So my family, they are being pushed to poverty right now. And a part of a, a Greek person being in, living in Berlin is that you have to wake up and not knowing whether your family will be able to pay the next month's rent or yeah. whether you have to pay in trachmes or in, uh, in euro. Do your friends in Greece ever ask you why you're staying in Germany? Why don't you come home? <laughs> Quite the opposite. They say, stay in Germany to save yourself. And what do you say back to them? I'm going to stay in Germany, but it's not going to be all that much fun. Uh, I'm going to stay in Germany, but I will return because I belong there. I'm a part of this society and I care for it. And I also find it important to go back and contribute because the future of Greece is in a way the future of Europe. It defines the future of Europe. Alike Gerliati is a Greek lawyer. She's currently living in Germany and hoping to start a PhD there. Good to hear your thoughts, Aliki. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you very much. The diplomatic crisis between the U.S. and Egypt over U.S.-funded pro-democracy groups has simmered down. A deal was struck last week that allowed six American citizens accused of stoking unrest to finally leave Egypt on a private plane. But their departure has only sparked a larger political scandal within Egypt, as the world's Matthew Bell reports from Cairo. When the group of employees with foreign-funded NGOs left Egypt last week, there was a public outcry here. For weeks, the suspects had been described in the Egyptian media as agents of America and Israel with a hidden agenda to stir up chaos. Then suddenly, they were allowed to fly out of the country. On Tuesday, the minister who pushed the case against the NGOs from the start, Faiza Abul al-Naga, spoke to the parliament and she found herself on the defensive. Abul Naga denied responsibility for letting the foreigners leave the country. One by one, Egypt's power brokers have rushed to do the same. Gamal Eid runs the Arabic Network for Human Rights Information. He says this was a fabricated case from the beginning. The government wanted to tarnish pro-democracy groups as a whole, and they have succeeded. But he says it's like magic that turns against the magician. The perception now is that the Egyptian government caved in to U.S. political pressure. Congress had threatened to cut off $1.5 billion in U.S. aid over this dispute. In the end, Egypt backed down. It cut a deal with the Americans behind closed doors. And, many Egyptians feel, it has damaged the independence of the judiciary by letting politics trump the law. The legal case goes back to December when Egyptian security forces raided the offices of several high-profile NGOs. Forty-three employees were eventually charged with accepting illegal foreign funding. Among them were 16 Americans. They were initially banned from leaving Egypt before being allowed to travel after more than a month. But at least 16 Egyptians still face possible prosecution. 
Among them is Yehiyahanam. He agreed to take a position with the International Center for Journalists. At least on my part, the program that I was going to supervise it and to be its advisor haven't even started yet. So actually, we are being tried on the intentions rather than actions. Renem is a 24-year veteran with Egypt's semi-official Al-Aram newspaper. He says some of his colleagues have turned their backs on him. He worries about his reputation. But Renem says there are bigger issues at stake. And he says he's not ashamed of signing on with a foreign-funded organization to help train journalists in Egypt. For moments, I thought that some of the uh, government officials here are just about to declare bellum sacrum, declaring holy war against the West. I hope that the public now has begun to realize that it was all fake. Attorney Negad Alborai represents some of the Egyptian defendants in the case. He says there's a lot of blame to go around, but he's not happy about the way the U.S. handled the situation. He says American officials were impatient. They pushed to get their citizens out of the country, but failed to explain how and why they were funding pro-democracy groups in Egypt in the first place. El Borai says Egyptians are finding it harder to believe that the U.S. has Egypt's best interests at heart. You must think about the reaction of the parliament, the political power, the press. You must think about the civil society. You must think about the destiny of the other defendants. It's not everything or nothing. Alborai says American officials have not been effective advocates for U.S. policy in Egypt as this crisis has played out. He says the Egyptian public now believes the worst about the Americans who fled, namely that they are foreign spies and that their Egyptian colleagues are guilty as well. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's been described as a tsunami without water. We're talking about the devastation in Brazzaville, the capital of the Republic of Congo. Buildings in the eastern part of the city lie flattened, with bullets and shell casings scattered all around. Looks like a war zone now, only the damage wasn't caused by battle either, but by explosions at a huge ammunition depot starting on Sunday. More than 200 people were killed and at least 1,000 injured. The blast also catapulted undetonated munitions into the air, spreading them over a wide area. The Mines Advisory Group is a demining agency working in Brazzaville. Nick Rosevere is its chief executive. He explains how the group is helping residents deal with the unexploded ammunition. The first thing to do, which is what we, our teams have been doing on the ground, is to cool down the stores or the remaining stores and the debris that there is lying around to make sure that it's cooled down uh, with water, to make sure that homes are cooled down so that that helps to reduce the instability of this stuff. The second thing to do then is to get in and map exactly how many of the stores, how many buildings uh, erupted, are there any which have not yet been ignited uh, and to then secure those and make sure that uh, that people are kept well away from them. So besides the, the destruction from the explosion itself, the blast sent unexploded ordnance flying into urban areas. You're, you're looking at this now. What are the potential future implications of, of such an accident? 
Well, they're very serious, the potential implications, unless it's addressed really urgently. We, um, we have spent the last year and a half removing uh, 15,000 items of unexploded ordnance, you know, mortars and shells and so on, from another site which actually was shelled during the fighting, the civil war in Congo in the 90s. And that was spread over an area of 26 hectares. So the potential spread of this lethal debris is enormous. And, of course, it's very attractive to inquisitive children. And what we want to avoid more than anything is that people pick it up in the street and take it home. Right. And have you seen that kind of uh, result before? Well, we've seen that, sadly, wherever we work. We're working at the moment in South Sudan. We're working in Libya. We're working in Somalia. We've worked in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, just over the river. We were in Libya, as I said, and there there have been many stories of children in the streets picking up curious, unfamiliar-looking things and taking them home, and I'm afraid, you know, these things then detonate in the family home and do terrible damage. So uh, we have programmes both on the technical side but also on the education and information side which aim to reduce the risk of this. You just listed a bunch of countries all over Africa. How, How big is the problem right now? There is a global problem with uh, accidents that happen inevitably where there are weapons uh, stockpiles and that, um, you know, it happens, accidents happen in in, uh, richer countries and poorer countries. Of course, in many poorer countries where there has been a history of, uh, of fighting and conflict, there may be larger depots than one would have expected in other places. And these need management. Um... Uh, old ordnance which is out of date and uh, you know unstable needs to be disposed of and often some technical assistance is required to do that and also the security of the stockpiles may need improving in order to stop um, material from um, from finding its way out one way or another what, what is the worst security you've seen uh, Nick uh, that really gives you concern it's not necessarily a question of security of stockpiles. It's also a question of cleaning up what's just lying around, mm. you know, and can be picked up in very poor countries. People will pick up uh, mortars and shells uh, because they have a high metal content and they may be able to sell the metal for scrap. And they may not have the technical knowledge to know and understand that this is either exploded or unexploded and how to tell the difference. And, um, you know, they pick it up, take it home or try to trade it in the local market and uh, and it causes, you know, terrible, terrible consequences. So it's not necessarily the issues of security around stockpiles. It's sometimes the issue just of too much stuff lying around in the aftermath of conflict that needs tidying up. Nick Rosevear is the chief executive of the Mines Advisory Group. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. A tough new immigration law went into effect last July in Georgia. Some of its more controversial parts were blocked by the courts. But one measure that did go into effect allows police to check the immigration status of drivers who are stopped for minor violations. Many undocumented immigrants in Georgia have stopped driving, using cabs instead to get to work. That's been a boon for several taxi cab companies in Gainesville, Georgia. Maria Romero drives a cab in Gainesville. She explains that as of now, police can't ask her passengers their immigration status. If they're not driving and I get stopped for any violation I committed, that doesn't have anything to do with, with whoever is in my cab. It's just me. But if they're driving and they don't have a license, they're in jail. So. Tell me about your customers, your fares. Where are they from generally? Well, we have all kinds of people from different countries. Uh, we have Salvador, we have uh, Guatemala, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Mexico. We even have uh, Chinese people. Yeah, it's a lot of different places. And for the most part, what are they doing in Gainesville? 
Well, most of them were the chicken plants, which here in Gainesville, there's a lot of them. This is like the, the capital of the world of uh, processing chicken. And these immigrants make enough money at the plant to take taxis back and forth to work? We try to work it out for them. Some of the cab drivers, they have like a crew of people where they take them back and forth to work and they charge them by the week. You provide flat rates for your regular customers. Yes, we do. We, we, it's a law that we have to have a meter, but we can't be charging with the meter because that's too much. Mm. So we came up with the idea of having a flat rate uh, depending on which area the customer lives. And it'll be easier for them, and it'll be easier for us because we won't be, like, making the people pay money that they don't even have. I imagine at this point you've got some regular customers. Have you befriended any of these people who are using your service? Well, me, myself, I've been doing this for, like, 11 years. And we know these people forever, and I try to treat them like friends, like family, because I live off of them, and they live off of me, so we need each other, and we get along pretty good. Not everybody in Gainesville understands their situation, though. The way I see it is that you got to have a heart and be a human being to understand other people's needs. Me, myself, I used to be illegal many, many years ago before the amnesty because that's how we got legal, my brothers and me. And before that, we had to hide from the law. They had to work really hard on California fields, and we had to struggle for stuff and be hungry and be wanting things and couldn't go get them because of the immigration situation. So we know how these people feel. We should say that you are, Maria, born in Mexico and are now a U.S. resident. You're a single mother putting two kids uh, to college. I would guess the local authorities might not look very favorably on what you're doing with your taxi. Why are you doing this? This is a job. I'm just doing a job that I need to provide for my house. I really didn't want to be a cab driver before. I didn't know how it worked. I thought it was something weird. But I came to a, a situation where I was struggling really bad. I, I was not making enough money to pay for my house and to pay a babysitter and everything when my children were little. And then I lost my car. But it came to my head. I said, well, I guess I applied for being a cab driver because they provide a car. So then I, I end up having a car to go home and a car to work. And this job, even that I have to work a lot of hours, has been helping me more than the ones that I used to have before. That's why I stayed as a cab driver. Taxi driver Maria Romero speaking with us from Gainesville, Georgia. Very nice to meet you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. You can see Maria Romero driving her cab around Gainesville. The video's at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the story of the turnip princess. I love the way that it shows us how fairy tale magic can transform the most ordinary and banal objects into enchanting things and people. Rediscovering old fairy tales coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic. Searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. A year ago this week, Japan was hit by the most powerful earthquake in its recorded history. The magnitude 9.0 quake was centered just off the country's northeastern coast, and what followed was a disaster of mythic proportions. A wall of water, in some places more than 130 feet high, slammed into the shoreline. The tsunami virtually wiped some towns off the map. It caused a triple nuclear reactor meltdown, and it left nearly 20,000 people dead or missing. For this anniversary, we sent reporter Sam Eaton into the disaster zone. He found that in many places, the recovery process has barely begun. It may seem an unlikely place to post messages of hope for the tsunami victims. After all, it is a comic book museum. But this white dome-like structure is also an icon, or at least it was. Today, the museum sits empty on a windswept island across from what was once the vibrant center of Ishinomaki City. More than 3,000 people died a year ago in this small fishing port northeast of Sendai, the highest toll of any town hit by the tsunami. And like most communities along this ravaged coast, much of the land here in Ishinomaki now lies barren, except for the mountains of wreckage piled on the outskirts of town. Masatoshi Saijo runs the comic museum. He says people from all over Japan and all over the world have come here and written notes of encouragement on the sheets of plywood that cover the museum's battered entrance. Most say things like, we believe you can reopen or don't be beaten by the disaster. But Saijo's favorite is this one. It says the common rider will live forever, referring to the famed mast character the museum is devoted to. Saijo says one year after so much of his city was destroyed, these characters and their stories of banding together to fight evil have taken on new meaning for the people who survived. The idea of never giving up, he says, or of helping one another. These are the ideals the cartoon characters aspire to. But when it comes to rebuilding Ishinomaki City and all the other towns wrecked by the tsunami, there are no fictional saviors, just ordinary people trying to rebuild their lives under extraordinary circumstances. Today, Ken Matsumoto's metal shop buzzes with life. Workers grind smooth the welds on a smokestack they've built for a new garbage incinerator. But there are reminders of the wall of water and mud that tore through here a year ago. Matsumoto shows me the dark water line on the wall just above his head. And then he points to one of his workers. He says that man lost his house and his entire family in the tsunami. His wife, his kids, even his parents. But he still comes into work every day. Around a quarter of Matsumoto's 96 employees lost their homes, but they all came back, some even before there was electricity or food. First they fixed the machines in the shop, and then they used those machines to fix other machines so that other companies could reopen, all without any help from the government. Matsumoto, who's 59, saw it as his responsibility to his workers and his community. But Matsumoto says getting people back to work is only one part of the recovery. The real recovery, he says, will happen when people feel they're able to live safe and secure lives again. And he says that's not likely to happen anytime soon. That pessimism runs deep here. 
I met Nobuyuki Takahashi at his office, a nonprofit that helps kids. Until recently, he managed a shelter for tsunami victims. Takahashi says there's a saying in Japan, first you save yourself, then the people around you, and last of all will come help from public institutions. He says for the most part, the 320,000 people who lost their homes in the disaster are still waiting for that help. For instance, it took the Tokyo government nearly a year to create a standalone recovery agency. This despite constant reminders of just how vulnerable people still are. Oh, squeak. Our interview was interrupted by a strong earthquake that lasted about 30 seconds. It didn't make much sound, but we could feel it. Pretty big and pretty long, Takahashi says. How often do those happen? Every day. There are hopes that the new recovery agency will now streamline the rebuilding process, one that's expected to take at least a decade and cost more than $200 billion. Takahashi is a proponent of rebuilding the tsunami zone as a model for dense, low-carbon communities. He believes that may mean the difference in keeping the few younger residents who still remain here. But Takahashi, who himself is 63, says his generation makes up the majority of these towns and villages. And most, he says, want to rebuild just the way it was. It's extremely difficult to go down a new path, Takahashi says. It's natural for people to want to return to what they had before. A hundred miles of the coast in the rusting steel and port town Kamaishi, that's not an option. Here, work crews are still tearing down wrecked buildings. But city planners see the cleared lots as an opportunity to tackle problems that have existed for decades. Kanako Fujiwara is with the city's reconstruction office. She says going back to what was here before the tsunami is impossible because Kamaishi was already dying. Japan's rapidly aging population has hit small, isolated towns like Kamaishi the hardest. In four decades, it lost nearly two-thirds of its population, mostly the younger generations. Fujiwara says if towns like hers are to have any future at all, rebuilding differently is their only hope. She unfurls a planning map on a table. These orange shapes, she says, represent new apartments for people who lost their homes in the disaster. And the red ones are community housing for the elderly. Instead of rebuilding individual homes near the ocean, Kamaishi planners favor green apartment complexes carved into the town's steep hillsides. And along the river in Kamaishi's center, concrete embankments would be replaced by a curving earthen barrier that would help absorb a tsunami's impact and serve as a city park. Fujiwara says ideas like these will not only make Kamaishi safer, they'll also make it a place that appeals to people of all ages and may even attract new businesses. But whether these things are actually built depends on limited recovery funds from Tokyo, $650 million of which has already been allocated to a single massive construction project, rebuilding the city's seawall. I drive up the road to a spot overlooking Kamaishi Bay where the old seawall lies in ruins. When it was completed just a few years ago, it was the largest in the world. And it was supposed to bring a sense of safety to Kamaishi. But then a 30-foot wave tore right through it and killed more than a 1,000 people. Kamaishi resident Naoko Fukunari says she still can't believe it. 
She says instead of rebuilding the wall, the money should be spent on the town's new housing plans and better roads to escape on in case of another emergency. In the downtown business district, which was mostly destroyed by the tsunami, we stopped next to an empty concrete slab. Fukunari says there was a shop here she liked to visit that had pretty pottery and nice fabric. She says now that it's gone, the place feels lonely and empty. Like many Japanese cities, Kamaishi has already been destroyed and rebuilt many times, from tsunamis and even American bombs during World War II. But Fukunari says it's hard for her to remain hopeful for yet another rebirth. Instead, she says, she tries to be thankful for the basic things of life, like having food to eat and a place to sleep. For The World, I'm Sam Eaton, Kamaishi, Japan. We've got a slideshow of Sam's pictures from the tsunami zone at theworld.org. You can see the barren lands decimated by the disaster, as well as the manga museum and the makeshift message board filled with notes of encouragement from around the world. All in all, a pretty emotional reminder of what befell Japan almost a year ago. Again, the slideshow is at theworld.org. On Friday, Sam Eaton takes us to the impact zone around the Fukushima nuclear power plant. He'll have a look at the progress and the challenges of the cleanup of radioactive contamination there. The hacking collective known as Anonymous claimed another victim today. The group's Italian branch said it had blocked access to the Vatican's official website. Catholic Church officials said they weren't sure why their site went down. The alleged cyber attack on the Vatican comes just a day after several suspected anonymous members were arrested in the U.S. and Europe. One of those detained turned out to be an informant for U.S. law enforcement. Gabriella Coleman is an anthropologist who studies the anonymous movement and teaches at McGill University in Montreal. She says not all anonymous activists have sophisticated computer hacking skills. There's many, many operations that do not require the work of hackers. I would say that a lot of people anonymous are are geeks. They're invested in the kind of culture and politics of the Internet. They have digital literacies, but they don't necessarily have those skills. And I would say the great majority of anonymous fall into that category with a number of people who have technical skills to run infrastructure. And then again, the hacker kind of operations are quite famous, but they're really only a chunk of the operations that Anonymous has conducted. Last week, Interpol announced that it had arrested 25 Anonymous members in various parts of the world. How global is this movement? It's not in every corner of the earth. I don't think that there's a lot of people in the continent of Africa, for example, who are Anons. Um, There has been one big operation there, I believe in Nigeria and perhaps in Zimbabwe as well. But the great majority, I would say, are in North America. They're in Europe, Western and Eastern Europe, and they're in Latin America with Brazil having a huge understudied contingent. Very, very interesting group because Mm -hmm. they both have a kind of hacking crew who have done a lot of hacks as well as others, again, who engage in non-hacking operations. You think about this stuff a lot, Gabriella. I'm wondering what other group or social movement historically do you think uh, anonymous or uh, anon, as they're often referred to, resembles? I would say that there are other groups that had a similar sort of rowdy, irreverent disposition where they fuse pranksterism with activism, such as the Yes Men currently or the Yippies or the Situationists as well. But I think what sets Anonymous apart is its scale and depth and breadth. 
a lot of those other movements were small, tightly controlled, sometimes even a vanguard of sorts. And Anonymous has managed to kind of spread and circulate in quite monumental way, in part because they're organizing online, and that definitely helps uh, in terms of its visibility and circulation. And finally, for you as an anthropologist, what, what interests you about this movement, specifically about Anonymous? I think part of it is the difficulties of researching it. I used to work on free and open source software, which is also a kind of really interesting arena for geeks and hackers. But their access was quite easy. It was quite straightforward. Anonymous really has pushed the limits of what's possible ethnographically. And that has been a really interesting challenge. I feel like I'm often operating in a maze or a labyrinth, and it feels like a puzzle. And so those elements are definitely part of the appeal, but also part of the frustration. What does all this tell you about humans and their behavior? I think one of the interesting things about Anonymous is that they came from a place called 4chan, which is an image board where the name was used to harass others and prank and troll. And then there was a kind of transformation whereby people use similar tactics, but channeled them politically. And when you say image board, this is online? Yes, uh, 4chan is online. And for those who haven't been, it's uh, quite an offensive place. So be ready to be shocked if you go there. And I do find it fascinating that from one of the most offensive quarters on the internet, there has been a very, very strong political will and sensibility that has formed. And it is one that is controversial at its core. Not everyone's going to agree with their tactics. They might agree with some, not with others. Some might disagree with all of them. Some might support them wholly. But they've certainly captured the imagination like nobody else politically in the last year. So given where they came from, are these decent moral people, the hacktivists in, in Anonymous? While many are geeks and hackers, from what I have seen, because I've met some over time, there's just too much variability there. It's almost impossible to kind of come up with a, a profile, I would even say, for individuals who contribute to Anonymous. Gabriella Coleman, the Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy at McGill University in Montreal. Thanks very much for your insights. You're welcome. Today's GeoQuiz features a cast of characters, including a turnip princess, a talking bear, and a prince who resembles a dung beetle. Wow. They all show up in some long-lost but now newly discovered German fairy tales. The tales were hidden away in an archive in a medieval German city we'd like you to name. It's located at the northernmost bend of the Danube River in the state of Bavaria. This World Heritage City sits on the edge of the Bavarian forest where some of the fairy tales are set. In one of those stories, a bear says to a prince, pull the rusty nail from the wall, place it beneath a turnip, and you shall have a beautiful wife. If you want to know how it all turns out, we've posted the rest of the tale at theworld.org. And if you want to know the answer to our geo-quiz, just hang on. It's coming up after the break. This is PRI. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If fantasy is what you like to read, you've got a lot to choose from. Harry Potter, Grimm's Fairy Tales, The Lord of the Rings, to name a few. Now you've got more options. German scholars have discovered a trove of 500 long-lost fairy tales. They've been hidden away in an archive in the Bavarian city of Regensburg. The answer to our geo-quiz. Good news for Maria Tatar. She chairs the program in folklore and mythology at Harvard. Oh, I'm always excited when we discover new stories, new collections. How often does it happen? Well, I would say it happens actually almost on a daily basis as scholars comb through not just the archives, but also look at the many collections of fairy tales that we have from the 19th century. So they are a discovery, but... I would say that the archive is almost infinite. We have stories all over the world that have not been explored. So there they were. They've been collected by a historian named Schönwert. They're stories from southern Germany, from the Bavarian region. Schönwert had collected not just fairy tales, but he had written many articles about local customs. So some of his work is slightly tedious. Uh, I find the fairy tale that was published in The Guardian, The Turnip Princess, quite enchanting. Tell us about The Turnip Princess. What do you like about it? It's a story that begins with a rusty nail and ends with a turnip that is turned into a princess. And I love the way that it shows us how fairy tale magic can transform the most ordinary and banal objects into enchanting things and people. I would guess that themes of fairy tales are common. Do these newly discovered tales conform with narratives that you've seen in places far flung from Germany? Oh, they resonate with so many different fairy tales. They story of the transformation. Also, we have a prince who falls asleep, a male sleeping beauty, which you find in many cultures. And so I'm always reminded of comedians who tell us that there are really only, what is it, 16 jokes? Right. And and all other jokes are, are variants of them. We have a higher number when it comes to fairy tales, but that number is always expanding. What Schoenvat gives us, and, you know, I haven't read all the stories, but just seen allusions to them, are tales that connect with the Grimm's collection, but also with Russian tales and with some Chinese fairy tales. I got to say, this one about the Prince Dung Beetle is most intriguing. I love the idea of a dung beetle as a metaphor for someone who carries and transmits fairy tales. That one sounds like real fun. There's also apparently a tale of a fair maiden in this collection who escapes a witch by transforming herself into a pond. You think that'll ever make the big screen along the lines of Shrek or Harry Potter? Oh, I hope so, because that's a variant of the Hansel and Gretel tale. And in fact, the Grimm's have a version of that story in which the girl does wonderful things like transform herself into a pond, throw a comb after the witch, and uh, the comb transforms itself into a trap. So this would make for great cinematic uh, narrative. Maria Tatar teaches folklore and mythology at Harvard University. Thanks very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Fairies of another sort appear in our global hit today. The peat bog fairies hail from the Scottish Isle of Skye. The band mixes traditional Scottish music with rock and African styles. Maria Bacalopolo has more from Glasgow. 
The Peapock Fairies formed in Skye, playing at local pubs, village halls, and parties. Two decades later, the group can draw the crowds. Thank you very much indeed. The group's name reflects the members' deep highland roots. It comes from a period when the bandmates were working for an old woman, cutting peat, or slabs of decomposing vegetation left to dry and used for fuel. Bassist Innes Hutton. We were staying in the area, and because we were doing work for her, she gave us food at night and stuff like that, and it was just lovely spending some time there, and she gave us this name, the Peat Fairies, which is she and the Mona in Gaelic, the Fairies of the Moor just because we were playing tunes at lunchtime and stuff like that and you know so we're just sitting out away out in the in the moor and playing and working and uh, we got that moniker from that originally the band both sang and played tunes but after 20 years of touring their set became entirely instrumental music peter morrison bagpipe and whistle player for the group says it was what the fans wanted more of Obviously, as a band, you normally sort of gravitate to the stuff that people are enjoying most. You know, you go by the crowd, and we sort of moving the sort of kind of bits of reggae and funk and bits of that with pipe tunes. That was really popular, you know. So um, by the time we did our first album, we moved away from songs completely. It was the rising popularity of festivals in the UK that really built up their fan base. Again, bassist Innes Hutton. The festival scene now is way beyond what I remember when I was young. You know, it's uh, this all different, they cater for all styles. They've got retro festivals, boutique festivals, Celtic festivals, world music festivals, you name it, rock festivals. So it's, if you kind of move between genres, there's a, there's a lot of work there. I and mean, it's definitely burgeoned in the last... Yeah. It's up 10, 15 years. The two leads in the Peat Bog Fairies are the group's composer, bagpipe and whistle player, Peter Morrison, and the furiously fast fiddler, Peter Tickell, also known for his work with Sting. Guitarist Tom Salter, who was played with the late Malian superstar Ali Farcature, binds the rhythm with his own distinctive African high-life playing. Peter Morrison says the band is a grab bag of styles. You know, there's the traditional instruments in it, but the rest of the makeup of the band could be from anywhere in the world. You know, it's keys, bass, drums, electric guitar, brass. So it could be from any genre of music. It's identified strongly with Scotland because of the pipes and the fiddle. Traditional Scottish music is appealing to audiences young and old more than ever before and moving in whole new directions, explains Hutton, the bass player. There's so many young, really well-trained, talented young people out there doing it now because it's got this credibility that they're just taking the music into whole new bounds. You know, yeah. It's just really a positive thing to be a part of. For the world, I'm Maria Bacalopolo in Glasgow, Scotland.
check out the Pete Bog Fairies performing their song Locks and Rocks recently in Glasgow. You can find the video only at theworld.org. And while you're online, follow me at Twitter. I'm at Marco Werman, one word. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the United States Institute of Peace, helping to prevent, manage, and resolve violent international conflict. Online at usip.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And the Carnegie Corporation. PRI. Public Radio International.